Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We return this morning to our study of this third chapter of Paul's great letter to the Philippians. We've said throughout our expositions of the last few months that in this chapter, Paul is chiefly concerned with defining the nature of the true Christian in the face of doctrinal threats. And defining a true Christian necessarily touches upon defining the true gospel. And so Philippians chapter 3 gives us one of those, the most blessed summaries of the gospel, especially in verse 9 where Paul declares that in Christ the repentant and believing sinner is justified by God on the basis of the imputation of an external alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. That is to say that the good news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ is that because of the sacrifice of Christ in his death, And the perfection of the righteousness achieved in his life, sinners who turn from their sin, abandon all hope of achieving righteousness on their own, by their own good works, and who trust entirely in Christ's work to have earned their righteousness and acceptance with God for them, God will count that perfect righteousness that Christ achieved to their account. Sinners justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But from the very inception of that good news, from the earliest days in which it was preached, uh, both by our Lord and by his disciples, there have existed two great perversions of that message. And either of those perversions, if believed, empties that message of its power to save because it changes the message into another message entirely, into another gospel which Paul says in Galatians 1, of course, is really no gospel at all, no good news at all. And those two perversions are the heresies of legalism and antinomianism. Legalism and antinomianism. Now, legalism, as many of you may know, is that teaching which says that the righteousness by which one becomes accepted into fellowship with God is attained not merely by the imputation of the alien righteousness of Christ through faith, Rather, they say, the sinner must add his own law-keeping, his own commandment-keeping, his own good works to the ground or the basis of his righteousness. This was the heresy of the Judaizers, whom we've met in chapter 3, and who, according to Acts chapter 15, verse 1, taught that unless you are circumcised, you Gentile believers, according to the, the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the Judaizers didn't reject the atoning work of Christ and the necessity of faith. They believed that one was saved by grace through faith. They simply said it wasn't by faith alone. Circumcision and the observance of the Mosaic law was necessary for righteousness. So you see, the legalists add to the work of Christ to achieve righteousness. And throughout the third chapter of Philippians, it's been Paul's concern to respond to that corruption of the gospel. You see, if the righteousness which came from the law has had anything to do with our acceptance before God, Paul would have had everybody beat. He tells us in verses 5 and 6 that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he was from pure Israelite stock, that as a Benjamite he had great social standing in Israel, that he and his parents maintained his Jewish customs and traditions even in the midst of a pagan environment. He says he was so committed to the law that he persecuted Christians for what he perceived to be their violation of that law. And that when it came to the righteousness that was in the law, nobody could accuse him of falling short of it. But in spite of all of that, what would have seemed to have been religious advantages, gains, as he says in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, Paul says he counts all of those gains as loss For the sake of Christ, that those religious advantages were not only worthless for obtaining a righteousness by which one can be accepted with God, but they were positively harmful, detrimental to his case because they tempted him to trust in his own achievements rather than the achievements of Christ alone. And so he says in verse eight, he counts those advantages and everything else in his life to be refuse in comparison with the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Because in Christ, he would not have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that righteousness that comes from God himself 
through faith in Christ alone. That righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is the only righteousness that'll save him. But in addition to legalism, there's also the heresy of antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is made up of anti, which means against, and nomian, which comes from the Greek word namas, which is the word for law. And so antinomianism means anti-law. It refers to those and those who teach the people to downplay and even deny the necessity of obedience in the Christian life. Or said another way, those who downplay and even deny that sanctification is the necessary fruit of justification. Antinomianism perverts the gospel, not as the legalists do by insisting that we must add to Christ's work our own obedience in order to be justified, but rather by subtracting from the efficacy of Christ's work, by denying that the gospel has the power to transform lives, by saying that people declared righteous by virtue of Christ's work can continue to walk in patterns of unrighteousness. So legalism attempts to add to Christ's redeeming work the filthy rags of human obedience. And antinomianism subtracts what Christ produces in the redeemed sinner's life as a result of justifying grace. And that is the infernal reasoning of Paul's objector in Romans chapter 6. After going on for two and a half chapters about the magnificent grace of God in accomplishing righteousness in Christ and justifying sinners freely through faith apart from works, he comes to the climax in chapter 5 verse 20 and says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so Paul's antinomian objector suggests, well, If increasing sin does nothing but to cause saving grace to abound all the more, well, let us sin that grace may abound. If I'm declared to be perfectly righteous on the basis of the external alien righteousness of another, of Christ, that righteousness imputed to me through faith alone, well, then it makes no difference whether I sin or whether I obey. I'm going to heaven on the basis of someone else's righteousness, right? Not my own. So then what I do is of no account. And of course, Paul responds in the very next verse by appealing to our new nature as a Christian, as one who's been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And he asks very simply, how shall we who died to sin, died to sin, how shall we still live in it? How can we go on living in sin if we died to it? Well, Having dealt with the legalism of the Judaizers in the opening 11 verses, Paul then turned his attention to address a misconception, namely that in light of all the great blessings of a saving relationship with Christ, Paul was saying that he was perfect. He says, no, that's not what I was saying. So he writes, verses 12 to 16, that he's not already become perfect or attained to the resurrection of the dead, but that he presses on in the race of the Christian life straining every spiritual muscle that he has in the pursuit of practical holiness so he can reach the finish line and lay hold of the prize that is face-to-face, sin-free fellowship with Christ himself. And by virtue of those exhortations unto maximum, sustained, concentrated effort in the fight against the flesh and in the pursuit of holiness, Paul puts the lie to the error of antinomianism. If we're to press on, if we're to strain forward to what lies ahead, if conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel means pressing on to lay hold of the practical holiness for which we were laid hold of by Christ, well, then antinomianism is contrary to that gospel. And that's precisely Paul's point in our text this morning. Let's read starting in Philippians 3 verse 17, going all the way to chapter 4 verse 1. Paul writes, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so in this context of having likened the Christian life to a strenuous race of pursuing holiness, Paul exhorts the Philippians to follow the example that he and other faithful Christians have modeled for them. And that is the the example of pursuing holiness with all their might. Not that I've already obtained, but I press on. Follow that example. And along with that central exhortation, Paul gives two reasons that the Philippians should imitate him and those who walk like him, to stir them up to greater commitment in the fight for holiness. Paul paints two vivid pictures contrasting the shameful character and the wretched destiny of the sensualists who deny the gospel by their licentious behavior with the virtuous character and glorious destiny of the true citizens of heaven. And so those are the three lines of thought along which we'll unpack this text. First, we'll briefly examine Paul's central exhortation for the Philippians to follow his example, and then we'll consider the two reasons he gives for that exhortation each in their turn. So notice first then the main thrust and the central exhortation of this passage. Paul's call to the Philippians to follow his godly example. Again in verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now again, in dissuading the Philippians from the theology of perfectionism beginning in verse 12, Paul's just admonished them in verse 16 to keep living by that same standard to which we've already attained, which is to say to continue in step with that same rule of life by which you've made the progress in holiness that you've already made. And what is that rule of life? It's the apostolic teaching that we now have codified for us here in the Scriptures, But by God's grace, the Philippians didn't need to merely follow an abstract set of instructions. They were given godly examples in the Apostle Paul and those who imitated him. And in our study of Philippians 2, verses 17 to 30, when we observed the examples of those three gospel-driven ministers, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, We spent some time underscoring the importance of discipleship in the Christian life and the importance of godly examples to follow as we seek to be faithful in our Christian walk. We all benefit so much more when things move from the tell me what category to the show me how category. Yes, the Lord Jesus is our perfect example But it's also helpful for us to have an imperfect example as well, like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus. Why? Well, Pastor John says it so helpfully. He says, we need to follow someone who's not perfect so that we can see how to overcome our imperfections. He makes this excellent observation that Christ never pursued perfection. He was always perfect. And so having an example to follow in godly but nevertheless fallen Christians is a good thing. It helps us to see the principles that we learn in Scripture practically lived out by someone who's running the same race that we're running. To extend the metaphor a little bit, we watch them as they they turn the corners. We imitate their strategy for running straightaways. We see how they handle particular hurdles and obstacles. And so we imitate them as they imitate Christ, as Paul would even say in 1 Corinthians 11.1. And so with the Philippians surrounded by the immorality of their pagan neighbors, as well as the immorality of professing Christians who we'll meet in verses 18 and 19, Paul basically says, I know that you are inundated with bad examples of how to conduct yourselves in this world, but consider my own example dear friends, and consider the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and consider the examples of your leadership, the overseers and the deacons that he mentions in chapter 1, verse 1. All of these people who walk also according to the pattern that you have in us. Let 
our pursuit of holiness and our fight against sin be a concrete example that you can latch onto and imitate. Friends, I know that you too are inundated with bad examples of how to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Our 21st century Western society is increasingly rivaling that first century Greco-Roman world in terms of its paganism, in terms of its self-indulgence, in terms of its virulent immorality. And unfortunately, those who would call themselves Christians in large measure are being conformed to the pattern of this world more and more every day. Many professing Christians have so abandoned any commitment to sound doctrine and careful study of the Scriptures, and they've so imbibed the spirit of this age and the devil's imitation of what they call Christian liberty that their seared consciences permit them to indulge in the deeds of the flesh without a thought to how their behavior belies the profession of their faith. And if you're not vigilant in submitting your mind and your affections to Scripture, that bad example can begin to look attractive. After all, you say, these are professing believers. They go to church. They listen to sermons. They read their Bible sometimes. And look at how they enjoy their freedom in Christ. Well, they seem to have the best of both worlds. But I say it again, indulging the desires of the flesh in the name of free grace is not the biblical doctrine of grace, nor the doctrine of Christian liberty. It's Satan's knockoff, his cheap imitation. And they don't have the best of both worlds because the Lord made it clear that you can't sit at two tables You can't serve two masters. You'll be devoted to one and hate the other or despise the one and be devoted to the other. And so don't follow the example of such people who redefine sanctification such that there's no actual effort that's required on your part. Teachers who insist that holiness simply comes by reflecting on your justification and is not marked by the kind of fervent struggle that an Olympic sprinter experiences as he runs his race. Oh, it starts with reflecting on your justification. It starts rooted in the soil of gospel grace. But from that foundation, you are to put your hand to the plow of Christian holiness. You are to run that race. So don't surround yourselves with teachers who teach that and with people who live according to that. Rather, surround yourselves with the kind of godly examples that are serious about the pursuit of God and serious about the fight for holiness. That is your responsibility. You know, it's unlikely that someone who is more mature in the faith is just going to come right up to you one day and say, hey, follow my example. You know, that might be nice, but it also might be a little presumptuous, and you might, I don't, you might not know how you feel about that. But no, it's, it's, it's on you. You need to cast a discerning eye on those people in this church that are worthy to be imitated, who are walking according to the pattern that we have in Paul, and who are zealous to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to ask those people to disciple you, to get in your life, to read Scripture with you, to pray with you, to read good Christian books with you and discuss them and show you how life works step by step as they've gone through it and can, you can look to them and say, how did you handle this? How, did you, you know, how, how can you be a Christian dad, mom? How can you be a Christian worker, uh, you know, a, a good employee? How do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with an unbelieving spouse or other family member? all those kinds of questions we get principles here and this is entire this book is entirely sufficient but what a wealth of benefit from a godly example who's taken those principles who's let them permeate his heart and then put them into practice such that you could follow them and again it's a, it's a sad reality that there are plenty of people who you could go to that'll never make you feel like you've got any progress to make people who will pad your ego and will excuse your sin, quite likely because they don't want anybody to call them out for their sin. But don't follow that example. Find people who are serious about godliness, who will help you lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us so that you can run this race with endurance. And of course, that means you've got to work at being those people too. Be the kind of people that others can come up to and ask for such things.
Well, having considered that central exhortation then, to follow the Apostle Paul's example of fervently pursuing Christ's likeness. Now we've got to ask the question, why? What are the reasons for such an urgent exhortation? And as we said, there are two of them. And the first is, number one, because lawlessness is enmity with and contradictory to the gospel. Lawlessness or antinomianism or sensuality is enmity with and is contradictory to the gospel by which we profess to be saved. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example for or because many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So here we meet the antinomians, professing believers who have so corrupted the doctrine of Christian liberty that they have seared their consciences and have plunged into a lifestyle marked by sensuality, by shamelessness, and by worldliness. In fact, Paul uses such strong language that some are hesitant even to grant that these are professing Christians. They think they're just out-and-out pagans. And surely part of Paul's point is to show that they're not true Christians, and so there is little difference between those two. But these are professing Christians, and we can tell that for a number of reasons. First, there's the repetition of the verb walk from verses 17 to verse 18. That's one of Paul's favorite words to describe the conduct of the Christian life. Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that you might walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And throughout the, the epistles. And so having just used that verb of Christians and having and normally using that verb of Christians, speaking of those who walk according to the pattern set by the Apostle Paul, it makes sense that he's referring to professing believers. Now, secondly, Paul's also overcome with emotion as he thinks about these people. As we'll see, this is the only place in all of Paul's writings where he says that he is currently weeping in the present tense. Plenty of places where he talks about his weeping but never where he says, I'm actually weeping right now. And it's very unlikely that he'd be moved to tears in that way because unbelievers are behaving like unbelievers. He would expect that. And finally, the context and the whole flow of his argument has been about pursuing sanctification as the necessary fruit of justification. And as he says himself in verse 12, that unbelievers can't press on to lay hold of Christ until Christ has first laid hold of them. And so when he says that many walk as enemies of the cross, he's not referring to people who are openly hostile to the gospel, enemies of the cross in that way. These are people who would agree with the claims of Jesus as being Messiah and Lord and the, the one who died for sins and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. They believe all that. That's not why they're enemies. They're enemies. They have become enemies of the cross, not by their profession, but by their behavior. And we'll look into that in a moment. But first, let's set the scene here. As Paul exhorts his dear friends to greater Christ-likeness. His mind turns to other professing believers that he's interacted with. Perhaps those whom he had at one point considered to be as close to him as he considers the Philippians to be. And it's as if he, he pauses at his desk and he puts his pen down and he looks, looks out a window into the distance. And in his mind's eye, as he's writing this, he sees the faces of those who might at one point called themselves a brother and a sister, whom at one point he might have called a brother and a sister. But as he thinks of their conduct and how they've abandoned the pursuit of holiness to indulge the desires of the flesh, he is overcome with sadness and with grief. And his eyes well up with tears and he tries to choke them back, but it's no use and he finally lets out a loud cry as his tears overflow right onto the parchment. Those whom he at one time counted to be friends, he now says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. It's 
truly as if he's mourning the death of a loved one that he's lost, loved ones. And just briefly, there's something that we can learn from Paul's example even there. In this verse, in no uncertain terms, Paul is clear to say that the destiny of such professing believers who give themselves to gratifying the desires of the flesh is destruction. But he does not rejoice triumphalistically or vindictively in such a declaration. Like, oh, you know those traitors? Their end is destruction. Yeah, going to get what they deserve. It's nothing like that. He is heartbroken. And we should be heartbroken too over professing believers whom we know who've denied the faith by their conduct. Maybe not by their profession, but who bring reproach upon the cross by their profligate lifestyle, by their lack of concern to submit their lives to the Lordship of Christ. We see that and we tend to get annoyed and we tend to get defensive because, as David says, right, uh, Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. But we need to drink deeply of the spirit of the great apostle and deal in brokenness, knowing that, as James says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so these professing Christians, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, not because they were doctrinally opposed to the saving efficacy of the cross. They would boast in the grace that they thought was theirs by virtue of the saving work of Christ. No, they had become enemies of the cross by rejecting the implications that the cross had on their daily living. In a word, they failed to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our thesis verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. So you see, you can be an enemy of the cross by denying its sufficiency to be the sole instrument of salvation. That was the error of the legalists. Or you can be the enemy of the cross by denying its power to transform lives, to free sinners, not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. And that is the error of the antinomians. The one adds to the cross and the other subtracts from the cross. Both are enmity with and are contradictory to the gospel. William Hendrickson, excellent commentator, summarizes helpfully when he writes, if the friends of the cross are those who show in their lives that they've caught the spirit of the cross, namely that of self-denial, then surely the enemies of the cross are those who manifest the very opposite attitude, namely that of self-indulgence. Now, do you follow Paul's argument here? He exhorts the Philippians to follow his example in this hot pursuit of holiness because to do anything else is contrary to the gospel. To stop running the race of the Christian life is to become an enemy of the cross because it was the very purpose of the cross to deliver us from sin. Titus 2.14 tells us that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Not lax about good deeds. Not take it or leave it. And so when you attempt to cash in on the forgiveness of the cross by confessing Jesus as Savior, but then fail to take up your cross and die daily to yourself and your sinful desires and to submit your life to him as Lord... You contradict the gospel you claim to believe and show yourself to be an enemy of the purifying cross of Christ. And Paul describes these enemies in four ways. He starts at the end and first exposes their destiny. He says in verse 19 that their end is destruction. And friends, this is none other than the eternal conscious torment an everlasting punishment of hell. We don't say it flippantly, but we don't avoid it. We say it solemnly and soberly. This is what the Lord Jesus spoke when he said that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many there are who enter through it. 
This is the doctrine of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, where he says, these, speaking of enemies of the gospel, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Eternal destruction. But that doesn't mean, as some have tried to make it out to be, a once-for-all destruction that happens at one point and then just lasts for eternity. Like you don't come back from that destruction. You're annihilated and that's it. It means an everlasting, consummate destruction. Always being in the process of being destroyed. Always coming upon that brink of spiritual destruction. And never actually coming to a state of rest. Friends, that thought is unbearable. But that is the destiny of those who profess the name of Christ but who fail to pursue holiness. Be warned. Be deterred from sin by beholding that dismal place to which it leads. Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon issues that same warning to his son. He says, the lips of an adulteress, they drip honey. And smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, son. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Stay away. And in chapter 23, verse 31, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Dear friends, don't look on sin in its deceitful facade of temporal satisfaction. Sin doesn't satisfy, not even truly in the short term. And in the end, it only leads to destruction. Paul goes on to describe their sensuality. Again, in verse 19, their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. These, These are marked by sensuality. Appetite there is the Greek word koilia, which literally refers to the stomach. It's the word for the organ of the stomach, the cavity at the abdomen. Because the viscera were perceived as the seat of a person's raw desires. It was used metaphorically to refer to unrestrained, sensual, fleshly impulses. So these people, Paul says, are driven by unbridled sensuality. This is the philosophy of if it feels good, do it. Why are you doing that? I feel like it. And why not, right? We're free in Christ. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of the righteousness of another. Jude says that such are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And in so doing, deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny him by their actions, by their behavior. And Paul says, that is nothing less than making a God out of your own instincts. He says, their God is their appetite. If my inordinate desire for sleep demands laziness, I will obey and I will turn on my bed as the door turns on the hinges, the Proverbs say. If the lusts of my eyes demand gratification, I will obey and darken the lamp of my body with lust. If my sexual desires demand fulfillment, I will obey and surrender myself to immorality, to fornication, and to adultery. If my desires for pride and distinction demand fulfillment, I will obey and inject a self-serving comment into the conversation as soon as I get a chance. And one we don't like to talk about, but that is especially relevant this week, if the lusts of my flesh demand gratification, I will obey And have a third helping of candied yams and a fourth plate of pumpkin pie. Almost every commentary on this passage that I've been able to find lists two categories of sin when they comment on this phrase. One is licentiousness and the other is gluttony. You're going to have another piece? Why? I feel like it. It's funny because it's true (laughs) uh, and we know what that is, but it's not funny because we need to keep that in check. We need to rule our desires. We need to not be driven simply by, I feel like it, by what, but by what is expedient. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body was meant for the Lord. So instead of disciplining themselves for the purpose of godliness, 
like 1 Timothy 4, 7 says. And instead of keeping their appetites under control, presenting the members of their bodies to God as instruments of righteousness, they surrender rather to their fleshly passions. And the Bible says that your God is whatever it is that you shape your life around and pursue satisfaction in. If you shape your life around gaining the satisfaction of your senses, touch, hunger, whatever it is, sight, that is your God. But if you shape your life around gaining the satisfaction, gaining the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, then Christ is your God. And you will count all of those sensual so-called pleasures as loss for the sake of the surpassing pleasure of knowing Christ. And thirdly, Paul exposes their shamelessness. Again in verse 19, and whose glory is in their shame. This means very simply that these people boasted in the very things that should have brought them shame. Do you want to know how sure I am that I'm saved by an alien external righteousness? Do you want to see how how thoroughly I believe in the doctrine of imputation of Christ's alien righteousness as the ground of my justification? Just look at how I enjoy my liberty in Christ. After all, it's not my righteousness that saves me. My righteousness is of no account in the court of heaven. And professing Christians do that very thing today. They flaunt the devil's cheap imitation of Christian liberty and boast in practices and habits that they ought to be ashamed of. And finally, Paul exposes their worldliness. Once more at verse 19, who set their minds on earthly things. Their mindset, their entire disposition, orientation, and attitude is entirely preoccupied with things of this world. The physical and material interests characterized by this sphere of sin. These are those whom Paul speaks in Romans 8.5 when he writes, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. What you set your mind on reflects what you are of. And so it makes sense then that he goes on to say in verse 7 that the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Or the King James says is enmity against God. Because these are the enemies, enmity of the cross. And so Paul exhorts us to follow his example in going hard after holiness because a life marked by sensuality, by shamelessness and worldliness leads only to destruction. Such Sinful indulgence is enmity with and is contradictory to the gospel that not only frees us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. And there's a second reason that Paul gives as motivation for pressing on with all our might in our fight for holiness. One, because sinful indulgence is enmity with and contrary to the gospel. And number two, a second reason that is twofold, because of our present position And because of our future hope, our present position and our future hope. Look at verses 20 and 21. Paul writes, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, the word our in that opening phrase is thrown all the way to the very front of the Greek sentence in order to show an emphatic contrast. Sensuality, shamelessness, worldliness, those things characterize the enemies of the cross. But as for us, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And because of our present position as citizens enrolled on the register of the heavenly kingdom, our lives must be ruled and governed by the laws of of that blessed realm. And the Philippians would have understood that imagery of citizenship. We've talked about this before. This is brilliant on the Apostle Paul's part. Remember that Philippi was a Roman colony, Acts 16, 12. And the historical sources tell us that Philippi enjoyed an elite status in the Roman Empire called the Ius Italicum, which is to say that it was governed as if it was on Italian soil. Philippians, they didn't have the, the governing bodies there 
with them on their soil. They're in Rome, so it's almost like a, a double win. They, they can be governed under the relaxed laws of a citizen of the empire, but the, the governing officials weren't there setting up shop. Of course, they had ambassadors or the, the equivalent of that, but it was a good deal in Philippi. They enjoyed the full rights and privileges of Roman citizenship as if they had been born there themselves. And they were proud of that status. They spoke Latin, the Romans' language. They copied the Romans' architecture. And they even adopted the way that the Romans dressed. Everything about their way of life was governed by a kingdom which they were citizens of but were not presently living in. And so Paul latches onto that reality and says, Brothers, you may glory in your Roman citizenship, but you must recognize that you are citizens of an infinitely greater kingdom, the kingdom of heaven itself. And though you remain on this earth, you are nevertheless enrolled on that heavenly register as citizens of the kingdom there. That's what Philippians 4.3 says just a little bit later. It says that your names are in the book of life. And you are, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, presently seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Your imperishable and undefiled inheritance is reserved in heaven, 1 Peter 1, 4. Your great and final reward is in heaven, Matthew 5, 12. Your treasure is stored up in heaven, Matthew 6, 20. And so there may be people who have abandoned the pursuit of holiness, but they belong to the realm in which sin rules, And so their conduct is determined by sin. But, dear brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in heaven, in the realm where Christ Jesus rules as Lord. And so your conduct must be determined by that reality. And if we presently belong to a kingdom that is distinguished in every way by holiness, we ought to live holy lives as citizens of that kingdom in this heavenly colony here on earth that we call the church. But not only are we spurred on to holiness because of our present position, we're also motivated to pursue Christ's likeness because of our future hope. Paul goes on to say, from which also, that is from heaven also, we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. So in contrast to the sensualists who set their mind on earthly things, the true believer eagerly awaits for Christ's return and is thus preoccupied with heavenly things. He sets his mind on, he keeps seeking the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Why? Colossians chapter 3, because Christ is there. And if Christ is our treasure... Our hearts will be with him who is our treasure in heaven. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We'll be focused upon heavenly interests, governed and regulated by kingdom purposes. And chief among those kingdom purposes is our own growth in personal holiness. And then when Christ appears, what is it that Paul emphasizes that he'll do? He says he'll transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And if you are in Christ here this morning, you know what it is to groan in this body, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, being burdened by the weakness of your flesh as a result of sin. Our bodies are not inherently sinful. They're not merely a prison in which we long to escape from. Adam and Eve, right, were created perfectly in the image of God. They were both soul and body. But ever since Adam fell, our bodies have reaped the corruption of that seed of disobedience and rebellion. And it's because of sin that our bodies decay. It's because of sin that we are beset with weakness and infirmity. It's because of sin that our bodies will finally succumb to death. And of course, we groan not only under those physical weaknesses, but we groan in a body that is still beset with sin itself. We know what it is to long to be free from the struggle of the flesh. And yet we have remaining sin and so we eagerly await the coming of our Savior because He will transform our bodies so that they're conformed even to the body of Christ's own glory. He will literally banish sin from our bodies. The answer to Paul's cry in Romans 7.24, who will save me from the body of this death? 
is answered in this text. We eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you from the body of this death. Just as Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection, so is His resurrected and glorified body the guarantee of our resurrected and glorified bodies. And if we had more time, I'd ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and do that in your reflection this week because that's such an amazing chapter about the hope of our resurrection without which Paul says we'd be of all men most to be pitied. But we learn something of that precious future hope that that as we put on the perishable body that was sown in corruption after the, the earthy man, Adam, so we will put on the imperishable body in glory and in power after the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We've borne the the image of the earthy man, and then we'll, at that point, bear the image of the heavenly man. And the key there is that what is he going to come to do? What is going to be the, the key thing about that transformation? Is that our bodies will be free from sin. See, the very nature of his final work of salvation at his coming will be to transform our sinful bodies into sin-free, glorified bodies. To finally purge us. And if we eagerly await that, friends, how can we do anything less than fight sin with all our might now? If that is the great destiny of this body, as it experiences such a consummated salvation, the goal of what we're all looking for and laboring for, how can I presently yield it and its members as instruments of unrighteousness, surrender my body to uncleanness, join the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of Christ with a harlot, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. That motivation of the end of what Christ is making you and will make you for certain is to have an impact in your motivation for the fight for holiness. That is where you're going. The finish line is secure. You're going to get there. And so start now. Why? It's as if you'd be make if, if this body is j- the, this corrupt thing that's just going to perish in the grave and wh- whatever, then, then live it up, right? If we're just going to be destroyed. But if, if this body is going to be reaped imperishable, it's like making deposits in an account that's going to close versus an account that's going to open and remain open. I'm going to invest in the account that I can have remain open for eternity. I'm going to start bringing that glorious hope into equity, into conformity with the present practice of my life. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, everyone who has this hope of his appearing and are seeing him just as he is, purifies himself just as he is pure. If that's what I'm going to see, if that's the goal, if that's the end, if that's my destiny, I'm going to purify myself starting now. 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14 says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, since you're waiting for a renewed earth and a a renewed body that will fit you for that new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, an eager expectation of Christ's return does much to protect the believer from earthly sensual enticements. That's the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 and just before that of the slave who, you know, his master's gone away and he's coming. Be on the alert. Be ready because you don't know when he's coming. And I don't know about you, but I would hate to be doing something stupid when Christ comes back. I hope that when he comes, I'm engaged in some of the loftiest worship or some, you know, I mean, if it is that he comes back before he takes me to heaven. But if he was to come back, how ridiculous would it be to be involved in something frivolous or, or worse, something immoral, something sensual, something where I'm gratifying the disease of my flesh. And since you don't know when that is, you've got to be on the alert at all times. And those of you who know yourselves and your sinful frailty will ask, can it be possible that this lowly body will be so transformed as to be free from sin and infirmity and decay? Can it be? And the answer is, yes, it can, by the inestimable power of Christ. Verse 21, if he can subject all things 
every power in the entire universe to himself, we have every reason to trust that he can use that same power to ensure that we shed this body of humiliation, perishable, weak, full of decay, and put on a body like unto his own glory, imperishable and powerful. And after all of that, what remains to be said? What is the conclusion? But chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Because there are many professing Christians who live in a way so as to deny their profession of faith and put them at enmity with the cross of Christ. And because such an end of, of that kind of way of life is nothing but destruction. Dear friends, stand firm. And I think this is why Paul heaps up so many words of tender affection. Beloved, brethren, longed for ones, my joy, my crown. I can imagine him looking again into that distance and in his mind's eye seeing the faces of the sensualists who profess to be believers and then seeing the faces of the Philippians as he thinks of them and being overcome with emotion that any of them might go the way of the sensualists, that they might go out from Christ and demonstrate that they were never truly of Christ. Not, not his Philippians. Paul can barely handle the thought. Not you, not my beloved brethren, not you who my heart aches to see, not you who will be my joy and crown on, of rejoicing on the, the day of Christ Jesus. And I share that grace life, not you. Not, don't, don't you come to that day and let one of your elders find you to not be there. Don't let it be that one day we hear of you off the rails somewhere living in profligacy, living like, like Jesus is not your master. Don't slacken in your pursuit of holiness. Set yourself on that path that stays firm, that stands firm. That's the imagery, a soldier standing firm, holding his ground. And don't only be warned by that negative example, but be wooed by that, the promises of our present condition and our future hope. If you're in Christ, at this very moment, your name is enrolled in heaven. Your citizenship is there. You're in a colony of heaven here on the earth. And so I plead with you, live like it. And don't forget, the king is returning soon. And when he comes, he'll exercise his almighty power, will banish sin from your bodies, transform the body of your humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And that same power that will accomplish your glorification, listen, is presently working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's the same word, energeia. It's the same word in Philippians 3.21 that'll transform your body that in Philippians 2.13 is currently at work within you for your sanctification. And so on the basis of that glorious, gracious reality, marvelously gracious reality, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Lay hold of Christ. Run with endurance. Hold your ground. Pray with me. Lord, we, we thank you for your word, and we pray that this wouldn't be words, that this wouldn't be just talk, but oh, that it would find a root in the hearts of your people, and that you would change us by it, not just for today, not just for this afternoon, not just for this week, but forever, that we will have come under the sanctifying influence of your word, and be more radically devoted to obedience, to pressing on, because we know that you, at the finish line, are worth it surpassing value. We know it. And so we ask you to, to confirm to our hearts and, and accomplish this great desire of ours to, to give you what you are worthy of in your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.